Good morning, friends. This, this morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 30. Listen to the word of God. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford and the Jabbok. He, turned, he took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to worship. My name is Scott Gilliland, and I am the senior pastor and band leader here at Arapahoe UMC. And I want to say thank you for being with us today. Whether you're watching live right now at the moment or whether you are watching later on this week, thank you for joining us in worship. If you're not yet receiving our newsletter or communication from our church, I want you to go to arapahoeumc.org new. Fill out a short form there. Let us know if you have kids in the home, and we'll get you signed up for our weekly all-church newsletter. And if you'd like to, you can also receive the weekly kids ministry newsletter, and you'll also get a personal contact from me and another one of our pastors on staff. We are in the midst of broad, the Bible on Broadway here at Arapahoe. This is something of an annual tradition and how good it is to have this sense of normalcy and joy and just plain fun in church. So there were a few things I knew about Arapahoe before I came back in July. I knew about the sign, of course, and I knew about the tremendous leaders who have uh, served this church and also been raised up within this church. And lastly, I knew about Bible on Broadway. I had heard word has gotten out about this series. I want to say thank you to Amanda and Kunray and Stan for the beautiful music. I want to say thank you to our tech team who has worked some extra overtime to make these musical numbers possible. What a fun way to spend our September. We are talking about the music man, if you can't guess. If you're just tuning in, you're like, what is happening? Uh, so we're talking about the music man this morning and what that has to do with scripture. And I know that not all of us have seen this musical. I myself had not until I knew that I was going to be preaching on the subject. So I went back and watched the original 80s or 80s, 60s version. And um, and it's, it's a phenomenal movie. It, it's a little dated at times, but it's fun. You know, a lot of dancing numbers and whatnot. Could have been like an hour and a half, but it's like two hours full of dancing. It's, it's great. It's great. It's good. If you've never seen it, um, it it's about a, a man named Professor Harold Hill, and, and really he's a con artist, salesman, and trickster. He, he goes into unsuspecting Midwestern towns, and he sells them on some product that he convinces them they need. Uh, at this point uh, in this story, he's, he's um, 
uh, selling band equipment for a boys' brass band and, and band uniforms. He's convinced this town of River City, Iowa, that they are in desperate need of a boys' brass band. And, and he's told that River City, Iowa, that Iowa in general is a tough nut to crack. The people are not easy to be fooled, um, but he believes he can. It's there that he meets Marion Peru, who is the local librarian and also the piano teacher. And he's told that she will certainly not fall for his tricks of course, he falls in love with Marion, and she falls in love with him. And in the end, he comes to find in River City, Iowa, his home, his community, the love of his life. And, and, it, and it concludes with the tremendous 76 trombones musical number as they parade through the streets. That's, that's the music, man. It's about a, a con artist learning to become himself and settling down. Now, uh, for those who have seen the musical, I have a couple of observations of my own. I couldn't help but jot down some notes because uh, there are some weird things about this musical I just wanted to name. Uh, first of all, they have town hall meetings like every single day. I'm pretty sure no one in this town actually has a working job. They're very easily manipulated. The second he shows up, they just start following him through the streets. They really love parades and following strangers through the streets of their city. Meredith Wilson, the creator of this musical, was born in Iowa and raised there, and holy cow, he hates Iowa. Like, the first hour of this musical is nothing but him dunking on Iowa the entire time. I still don't know if Shapoopy is a name or just a made-up word, or a fever dream that I hallucinated, but I'll never get it out of my head. Lastly, I need to say this. Amaryllis, who you see pictured here, the, the little girl who plays the piano poorly, I might add, is a bully who laughs in the face of a boy with a speech impediment, and then has the audacity, the audacity, to ask why he's crying. Why do you think, Amaryllis? Maybe it's because you've just given him the traumatic wounding experience that will lead him to be unable to maintain a healthy romantic relationship without self-sabotaging once vulnerability enters the equation, a memory which he will recount in tears of this therapist 35 years later as he wonders out loud why he can't simply let someone get close enough to hurt him again. Maybe that's why, Amaryllis, you cold, heartless sociopath. It's a great musical, 8 out of 10, really good, really, really good. Ultimately, of course, it's the story of a con man who learns to stop running from his problems, who finds the courage to live authentically, who finally sees other people as beloved community and not sources of profit to be manipulated, who allows himself to be loved and forgiven for the wrongs of his past, and who finds life and love in an unexpected place and people. Imagine if there were a story like that in the Bible. Could I introduce you to Jacob? Jacob, from the book of Genesis, Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Let me tell you a little bit about Jacob's story that leads us to the wrestling story that we heard Pastor Maggie read just a moment ago. Jacob was born the younger twin of Esau, his older brother, and Esau was a skilled uh, hunter, and Jacob was not. He tricks Esau into giving up his firstborn birthright over a cup of soup, and then later tricks his blind, dying father into blessing him and not Esau by wearing goat skins and cooking some dinner true story. Anyways, Isaac finds out that Jacob has tricked him when Esau shows up and cooks him some dinner for his blessing, and Isaac says, well, I've already given the blessing to Jacob, and Esau says, well, can't you just give me the blessing? He says, well, no, I said like a magical poem, and so I can't take that back. What do you want me to do? My hands are tied. And so then Isaac tells Jacob that he has to leave and go to marry one of his cousins, 
biblical marriage. Am I right? Anyways, Esau pledges to kill Jacob because he's so mad about having his blessing stolen. So Jacob runs, feeling strongly that he should very much like not to be killed. Uh, He has a dream. He pours some oil on a rock, names it Bethel, keeps going, meets his cousin Rachel, falls in love with cousin Rachel, and tells his uncle he wants to marry her. So Uncle Laban makes him work seven years for the right to do so. And then he marries the wrong cousin. Uncle Laban tricks him into marrying Rachel's sister, Leah. So then Jacob has to work another seven years to marry the right cousin, Rachel, as well. And then he has some kids. He gets into a fight with his uncle Laban over some magical goat breeding gone wrong. Twenty years have gone by, finally, until he finally uh, receives this message from, from God telling him to go back to his family's land, the land of Esau. So he starts heading back, sends some messengers to Esau, and they come back and tell him that Esau is coming, and not just Esau, but also 400 men with him. And that's where we pick up Jacob's story today. The Old Testament's pretty cool. Jacob's story is a wild one, full of twists and turns, and he himself is something of a conniving con artist, and yet what we'll find is that perhaps God has the biggest surprises left to tell in his story. And so as we heard, I want to point out just a couple of things from the scripture we heard this morning. To set the stage, Jacob sends his family and all that he owns across this river, Jabbok. It's really almost like a little stream, right? It it, it feeds into the river Jordan. And it says this. This is the important phrase I want us to notice first. In verse 24, it says, Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone. Now, that's one of those blink-and-you'll-miss-it kind of statements in Scripture that maybe you think at first reading is unimportant, but um, Jacob being alone is significant in his story because if, if you're familiar with Jacob's story for the last several chapters, you'll realize he spent very little of his life alone. He was born a twin, and he kind of bounced from person to person, tricking them into getting what he wanted out of them. And once the con was up and the conflict began, he would run off to the next person. We might even say the next victim. And so here in verse 24, it says, Jacob was left alone. You know, this, this story is, on one hand, a story of identity. That's what I want us to focus on today, the story of identity. And not just Jacob's identity, but also Jacob's understanding of God's identity. And here I think in this statement of Jacob being alone, we find something that's really important for us in our own pursuit of identity. The importance of allowing ourselves to be alone. Maybe you're like Jacob, and if you did an inventory on your life, you realize, "I, I haven't really spent much time in my life alone. Maybe you're living right now in the most alone season you've ever been in, and I want to acknowledge that. But I think it's important for me from time to time to ask myself the kind of question that Jacob no doubt asks himself in this night. Apart from the relationships that can define us, or the roles that define us, or even the events or circumstances that define us, when everything else is stripped away, who are we? When everything else is stripped away, who are we? That's when we begin to get to the core of our identity, not wrapped up in roles or circumstances or relationships, but who we are at our core. You know, Jacob's main conflict in life is born out of pretending to be someone that he is not, to receive a blessing that does not belong to him. You could say that the root conflict in his life is an internal one, a jealousy, an envy, a a wishing that he were someone he simply is not. 
which then makes the next part of the story so intriguing. You know, it, you may have noticed that it, the, the figure that wrestles with Jacob is never named. It's just called the man or a man. And in Hebrew, that's the word that's used, a man, right? Now, we've interpreted this man to be many different people throughout the years. The sort of classical interpretation is that it was a messenger of God or perhaps even God, God's self. Maybe it was Esau or Laban coming to exact some revenge. But I, I, I tend to take the artistic license to, to believe that maybe it's Jacob wrestling with himself, wrestling with his inner conscience, the part of him that knows that not everything in his, in his life has been above board, that maybe he's wrestling with those inner demons, and that's why this figure is unnamed. Whoever it is, Scripture clearly wants it to be a mystery to us. This is one of those parts of Scripture that remains a holy mystery, that we have to simply accept that we don't get every answer we're looking for all of the time. So rather than wondering about who this is, I also want us to notice how Jacob responds to this. Rather than running, what does he do? You know, classic Jacob would have run, but instead he holds on. He holds on to this figure. His whole life he has been in search of a blessing, and he has gained so much that you could call a blessing. You could say he's lived a very blessed life, even though so many of those blessings were stolen. But now he feels as though he's about to receive that which he's actually been searching for. He's lived such an unsatisfied life. And what does he receive? A new name. The name Israel. Now that's an interesting name. It's a name that seems to pair Jacob's identity with God's in a way. Because the name Israel has a double meaning. On the one hand, it means what this figure says is, you know, he's being named Israel because the name Israel means someone who struggles or strives or wrestles with God. But the name Israel can also mean God strives or God wrestles. It means both. And so as Jacob finds himself in this wrestling, as he realizes perhaps the blessing he's looked for his whole life is to simply accept and be satisfied with whom he is and not to wish he was someone he's not. As Jacob finds himself in this wrestling, we see that perhaps God is known as one who wrestles with us, intent to never let us go. Now, that's an identity that I need to know about God so frequently in my life, that God doesn't let me go. And so Jacob's life has been changed marked not only by his name change, of course, but also by the, the limp that he receives from his injury. And so he approaches the next day wondering, no doubt, what his brother will have waiting for him after these two decades he's had to stew. Anybody out there hold a grudge? Can you imagine facing your brother after two decades knowing how much he has wronged you? I wonder what Esau will do. So in chapter 33, it picks up and it says, Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. Now this part's important. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Now, I wanted to stop here and just, I, I found this interesting. The way that Jacob arranges his family, it's important on two fronts. First, he's arranging them in, in terms of favoritism. 
Uh, notice that it's the, it's the maids and their children, and then Leah and her children, and then Rachel and Joseph. He's, he's arranging them in terms of how much, in some ways, he loves them, which is tragic and flawed, and reminds us that Jacob, though transformed, is still a flawed and broken human being. He's hoping that when Esau comes, he knows that Esau is going to want revenge, right? That's what a brother would want in this moment, and the way that Esau will exact his revenge is by taking from Jacob's family and flock whatever he thinks is appropriate. So Jacob has placed them in this order so that maybe Esau will stop at some point, and he can keep Rachel and Joseph for himself. This also sets up and foreshadows Joseph's own story as being Jacob's favorite, which he will pay for that with his brothers if you know his story. So Jacob is not a perfect person. Even in his transformation, even in this changing evening with the, rest, with the wrestling match, um, he's still broken. And he knows that Esau is going to want exact revenge from him, right? Because that's the way the world works. And so what will Esau do? He's a famed hunter. He's familiar with killing and death. He's had 20 years to stew, and he's brought 400 men with him. I wonder what Esau will do. In verse 4, it says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Esau doesn't want revenge. He offers nothing but grace. What, what is happening? Jacob even tries to offer Esau some of his family as repayment. That's going to lead to an awkward conversation on the way home. Um, but Esau wants nothing from him. No, 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 I don't want anything from you, Esau says, which, which leads Jacob to then say this, for truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Since you have received me with such favor, with such grace. For truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. This is the second time that Jacob has seen the face of God in the last 24 hours. The first time is in the wrestling. And when he's given the new name, he, he sees the face of God in that moment. And maybe that's why I like the interpretation that he wrestles with himself. That for, the, for, for a second he finally can see his own face face of God within himself, his own image of God within himself. And here he sees the face of God in the reconciliation and the grace offered by a brother who owes him nothing. Esau wipes clean the bill, this theme of redemption, of grace, runs all the way back into the book of Genesis. Professor Harold Hill thought that he would find schmucks in River City. But instead he found his love, his community, his home, and himself. He learned how to stop pretending, how to be satisfied, how to live authentically, how to receive grace and forgiveness. Jacob thought he would find punishment from a God of vengeance. He thought he would find revenge from a brother whom he had wronged. Instead, he was able to see God not only in the forgiveness of Esau, but also within himself, flawed as he may be. And he found grace in his relationship with God and Esau, proving that the life of faith invites us to discover grace in unexpected places, grace from God and grace from each other. 
Where is God surprising you in your life? Where might God lead you to find grace in an unexpected place or an unexpected people? And once found, can we claim our beloved community and call it home? Amen.